Who wrote Hebrews? Apollos wrote Hebrews. Paul didn't write it. Okay, uh, hymn 870. <clears throat> now that the daylight fills the sky, we lift our hearts to God on high, that he in all we do or say would keep us free from harm today. Would guard our hearts and tongues from strife, from anger's din would shield our life, from evil sights would turn our eyes, and keeps our ears to vanities. So we, when this world day is gone, and night in turn is drawing on, with conscience by the world unstained, shall praise his name for victory gained. All praise to you, Creator Lord, all praise to you, Eternal Word, all praise to you, O Spirit wise, we sing as daylight fills the skies. Let us pray. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Okay, the verse of the week, Colossians 1.16. Let's speak this together. By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Who is him? Yeah, be more specific. God the Father? No. Creator? No. Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, so actually, in the context of this, this verse from uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says that uh, there's a big passage, I think it starts at verse 9, and your editorial heading will very often say, the preeminence of Christ. And it is Paul talking all about Christ and who, who he is in history and what he has done. He says that, um, God, er, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And then says, and by him, that is by Christ, all things were created. Uh, who is Christ? If you're thinking of creation. Yes, the Word, because this sounds an awful lot like whose gospel? John. Yes, all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth. Well, that's like John's gospel. He created all things and there is nothing that is that was not created by him. That is the Word. So by him, that is, he is the means. By him, through him. And for him, your prepositions always matter. Um, so he is the means, but through him, what, what does that imply if it's through him? What does it imply if it's the means, too? He's the action. He's the action, but... God, well, i got to go back to this. God created through, through Christ, then. God... The Father. Yes. So when you see through him, this is Trinitarian. 
Now by him is sort of Trinitarian too because he is the means by which the Trinity creates. God speaks, and what is it that he speaks that then brings forth creation? The Word, right. So the Father speaks, the Word is the thing that brings it about, and the breath of the Spirit is what carries the Word, just like when you speak. All things were created that are in heaven. Now this is actually wrong, and I looked it up. I, look, I looked this up in the Greek. What it is actually is in the heavens, not heaven plural. So this, or not heaven singular. So this brings you back to the idea of the creation narrative. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth, not heaven and earth. It's the heavens. And it's important for you to think about the heavens as the spiritual realm and not just heaven. And we'll talk about that another time later. And that are on the earth, visible and invisible. What should this make you think of? Yes, exactly, the Nicene Creed. It's creedal. Or rather, the Nicene Creed is, spiritual, or is scriptural. Um, this is important for you to know because the creeds of the church are not written by men. That's one of the arguments from church bodies that don't like the creeds is, well, we don't confess things that are written by men. We only confess the Bible. And then you have to say, well, what the heck do you think the creeds are? Every, every single point in the creed is just something that is from Scripture. It's confessing the entirety of God and what he is and what he does using nothing more than what Scripture has already told us about him. That's the creed. So this is creedal language, but more accurately, the creed is scriptural language. And then all of this we'll talk about later on today. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers and that is something you hear again in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he says that neither angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor thrones, nor dominions can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, all of that is language that really is angelic. It's spiritual language. Uh, and I don't mean spiritual in that it is ephemeral, like you couldn't grasp it. I mean spiritual in that it's talking about a spiritual reality, something that is real and that's really there and has power, but something that you don't typically see. Uh, okay, let's speak this again. By him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and by him. What is the first article of the creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, Eyes, ears, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. Okay, what does it mean when you say God has made me and all creatures? What are you saying about yourself? Okay, sure, you are more important. In the, in the hierarchy of animals, you sit at the top. Okay, yes. I, there is a point to be made that I have just made, and he who has ears to hear will hear it. You are above, in the hierarchy of the animals, you sit at the top, which means what? It means you are an animal, in, in, in some sense. Now, we can nitpick all we want, but it, you know, basically speaking, you are an animal because you aren't an angel. And if you are an animal, you are... Well, you didn't just pop into being. You are created. 
God has made me and all creatures, which is to say, I am creature. I am a created creature. Of the, now, you know, when's the last time you talked about yourself as a creature? But that's the relationship with God. It, the created relationship with God is he is creator, you are creature. Does the clay say to the hand that formed it? You know, because the hands are creator, the clay is what is created. You are creature. He's given me my body and my soul. He's given you your person. Your eyes and ears and all of your members, your, your physical, physical material qualities, which means if you are born like blind Bartimaeus, if you are born blind, who sinned, you or your parents? Neither. God has made you. Your eyes he has given to you. Why he has permitted them not to be able to see, only he knows. But everything that you have been given is something, or everything that you are, all of your faculties, all of your physical parts are things that God has given to you. So this also then ties in with the ninth and the tenth commandments that you aren't to covet, that you are to be content with what you have. What you have doesn't only mean your possessions, it also means your, you, you, my, my physical being. Why do his knees work better than my knees? <laughs> Who can say other than the Lord? But you are to be content with the body that God has given you because even that body he still takes care of. He gives you your reason and your senses. You reflect the divine image in your reason. Your senses, I think you can take that to a higher level as well. Uh, there is sort of a spiritual sense of senses. <coughs> And then he still takes care of them. And this is really important because it means that if God is still taking care of you, one, it means he is not the watchmaker God. Remember what the watchmaker God is. The watchmaker God is the one who builds the watch and it is beautiful and it is intricate and he does a fabulous job. But then he sets it on the shelf and then he just steps back and watches it work and he never interacts with it again. That's the watchmaker God. So that is to say God creates and then takes a step back and he looks at you like science experiments, like rats in a lab, and he says, now what are they going to do? You are like the Lord's ant farm. He puts you in, he puts some food in, and then he closes it up and he doesn't ever intend to open it again. He's just going to watch that closed system and see how it goes. That isn't what he is like because he still takes care of you. It also means that God cannot abandon you. It is actually impossible for God to forsake you. Now, he promises that he's not going to, yes, but he promises that because it's impossible for him to do it. He's telling you what the reality is. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you, and the reason for that is I can't. It's one of the things, many things, that God cannot do. So, the fact that he creates you, that he makes you, that he brings you into this creation also necessarily binds him to you. you, you a, a parent doesn't get to have a child and then walk away from them and say, well, they're a child now, the state will take care of them. You have an obligation to that child. And we said this in Catechumenate yesterday, but you will, you will always be, no matter how old you are, you will always be daddy's little boy or girl, and mommy's little boy or girl. And you might not fit in their lap anymore, but they still wish you did, and they still want to take care of you as if you did. Uh, that's the way that God is. doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, what you have done, God is your father, and he loves you, and he will never stop loving you and wanting to take care of you but he is also bound to you by the deeper law. He's brought you forth, and now you are his, and he has a responsibility to watch over you and to guard you and to protect you. Uh, okay, any questions about that? Yes, sir. Okay, so is it, is it correct to believe that God created man to take care of the rest of his creation? No. 
He gave man the task of taking care of creation, giving him dominion, but that's not the reason he was created. God created man so that God could love. His act of creation is an act of love. He creates in this act of love a, a, a recipient of his love, uh, and he desires for that recipient of his love to grow in maturity of body and soul and relationship to have full communion with God. That is why man is created. That man has dominion over creation is, is a secondary thing. But that's not the primary reason that man is created. Does that answer your question? Okay. Well, thanks be to God. <laughs> okay. Kids, you can go to Sunday school. Um, one thing that I want to say about the verse of the week. <clears throat> when Paul, in the previous verse here, talks about Jesus being the icon or, or the, the eternal image of God, what that means is God, and, and you can even say the triune God in that sense, not only the Father, but the triune God is not known apart from Christ. It is impossible to know God apart from Jesus. The only way that you know God is through Jesus. The only way that you know what God says is through Jesus. The only way that you know what God wants is through Jesus, through the Word. Not the Word as words on a page, but the Word as in the living, active, two-edged sword Word, who is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a really important thing. If Jesus is the eternal image, then that means that anywhere God is, anywhere where God is interacting with people, anywhere where God is met, spoken to, presenting himself, doing a miracle, Jesus is there. Bill. <clears throat> I thought there was a familiarity about that passage, and I thought in Romans, and I found it. In Romans 8, 37 through the end of the chapter. Yes. It's for I'm convinced that neither life nor neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers. That's uh -huh. the word I was looking for. Yes. Oh, and I miss that's what I quoted and I misquoted it because I said it was from Ephesians, but it isn't. It's yeah, Romans eight. I had trouble finding it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah, hold me accountable. I'm supposed to know my Bible. Uh, yeah, that's Roman. <laughs> okay, that's my one mistake of the week, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> that's a joke. Oh, yeah. Oh, whoa, wow, you are gracious. Thank you. Um, yeah, so that's Romans. In Ephesians, it's Paul talking about we do not fight against the powers of the world, but about the, uh, we, we fight with the spiritual powers and principalities. Our enemy is of the air, he says, uh, which is really, really interesting. Who is an enemy of the air? I mean, you stop and think about it. Well, what is air? Think of another, think of another way of talking about air. We have other words for it. The A-I-R. Yes, A-A-I-R, like what's around you that you breathe. Think of, some, think of another word for air. Okay. Breath. Yeah, actually, I was thinking that somebody would say wind, and then I was going to say, yeah, good wind, but now... But breath is actually right on. Uh, that, that air is breath. And breath in the language of the Bible means more than that I am... <laughs> because God breathes life into Adam and Eve, and the, what is it that, what is the breath of God? It is the ruach, which is, that's the Hebrew, that's uh, the spirit. The breath of life is the ruach, the spirit. Greek is the psuche, which is where we get psychology, your psyche, 
or the, the, your, the breath of your life, the, the essence of you, the life of your being. So there is this sense that by air, it doesn't just mean like, oh, the wind and the air around us. There's some kind of thing in the air. It means something that is spiritual, a breath. Now, how do you talk about something that is spiritual? What's the best language that you have to work with? You really don't have anything. What do you, how, do you, how do you describe a non-material being? It, yeah, very carefully. But, you know, the, the honest truth is, it is actually impossible for you to describe a non-material being because you have no experience and no vocabulary for that because you are material and everything you interact with is material. So how do you then talk about something that's immaterial? What's the closest you can come to? The air. Because the air is material, but it's the, it's the least material thing you interact with. Unless you live in San Francisco. <laughs> hey, I'll be here all week. Um, now, any questions about, about Jesus as the immortal image of the Father or, or any of this principalities? We'll talk about principalities and powers and all that in just a little bit, but before we go on, I want to make sure that you don't have any questions about the catechism or the verse. Okay, uh, the esteemed Mr. Heitman asked me to summarize some of the information in the newsletter for you, and now he's out getting coffee. Uh, uh, the newsletter, I'm going to say two things about the newsletter. Firstly, the newsletter is now available on the website as a PDF. So if you want to read it, at home or printed off somewhere, you can do it from the website too. Um, if you want to share it with people, I, I had some requests about that. If, if you want to share it with people or make copies or email it, by all means do so. It's now on the website available uh, to help you with that. You may share it. Somebody asked me for my permission. You don't have to ask me for my permission. Everything that I say publicly is something I stand behind, and everything that I write publicly is something that I also stand behind. I don't believe in anonymity. If it's something that's, bless you, if it's something that is worth saying, it's something that's worth putting your name behind, and if you put your name behind it, then you, you have to be willing to make it go public. So uh, share to your heart's content. Doesn't mean everyone's gonna like it. You may not always like it, but if you want to share it, you're welcome to. Now. This month's newsletter, in hard copy only, contains some extra things. And normally I would not do this, but I th think that this is important. Uh, there's some drama that is happening in the Synod right now that I think it's important for folks to be aware of. And again, I ordinarily try to keep the synodical drama to a minimum because your call is to not have to deal with that. Mine, regrettably, does involve that. Uh, but every now and then I need to pull the curtain back for you to see a few things, and this is one of them. There are three things in the newsletter for you. One is an article that came from a website called steadfastlutherans.org, which you may or may not have heard of. Uh, I don't follow them very closely but they were the first ones to report on this news. The second thing is an article that was published a week prior in Christian News, which I do go on record saying is a publication that does not have a good reputation, mainly because of its predecessor. It played an important role in the Synod during the 1970s, uh, but had gone downhill. Um, however, this article was published by a professor at Concordia University, Wisconsin. It's a very good article, and essentially what this professor has done is has blown the whistle on some problems in the Concordia University, Wisconsin system. They are currently searching for a president for the university, uh, but have prioritized um, critical race theory, Marxism, gender ideology, 
and uh, the transgender agenda uh, over finding somebody who is a faithful Christian and who has good academic qualifications to be able to run a university, which ought to be disturbing to you as the laity in synod and certainly is disturbing to me as a pastor in synod because this is one of our synodical universities. So do not think that what is happening in the world is removed from the church because it is creeping in. Its tentacles have gone in and its roots are deep. This professor, Dr. Schultz, blew the whistle about this because it was kept under lock and key. Nobody knew what was happening and he blew the whistle and made it public. Concordia University, Wisconsin subsequently with no hearing, no trial, no due process, suspended him indefinitely and escorted him off the campus with armed uh, campus security guards. So that's where we are. The third document in there is the letter from President Harrison, which is what it is. It basically says, oh, something happened at the university and I'm the president who has ecclesiastical oversight, so I should do something. Love, President Harrison. Eighth commandment and all being what it is, that's really all it says, which was sort of disappointing. Yes, he did say stop talking about it. Um, I'm not going to. There's something stinks. And something stinks in the entire Concordia University system. Concordia Portland is gone. Part of the reason why it's gone is because of doctrinal issues. Concordia Selma is gone. That had other issues, but some of them were doctrinal. Concordia Bronxville is gone. Big part of that, doctrinal issues. Concordia Chicago has doctrinal issues. Concordia University in Ann Arbor is now searching for a president using false criteria and has suspended a professor who said, hey, maybe this isn't the way we should be doing things if we want to be a church institution. Doctrinal issues. There is something to see behind the curtain, friends. And this is why I'm peeling it back for you to see. The laity, you need to know that things like this are happening. So keep that institution and keep the synod in your prayers because things are not pristine. Yes? <clears throat> you made a point there that uh, jogged my memory a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> in the 70s, when, this, when the synod was having its issues and, and had moved through the late 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. and moved to the left. Yes. Uh, Pastor Poole, who was at Craig Corning at that time, was, was very involved with it. And he told me once, uh, I'm quoting him as closely as I can, he said, that was allowed to happen through those years because it was, it was held closely in St. Louis and the laity in the synod didn't know anything about it. And when the, some of the younger pastors, or the young pastors, started coming out of the precincts and stuff that was not old line Lutheran, that the, then the laity started going, hey, what, pastor, what's going on? And, and that's when it, it opened up. That it had been kind of held closely in, too. Yeah. I am thinking of a way to say this with the best possible construction. <laughs> <laughs> there is a majority of pastors and theological intellectuals and, dare I say, synodical officials who think that you are dumb hicks. And because they think that about you, they don't think that you have the capacity to understand or even the desire to understand some of the inner workings of synod. Or 
they think that you have no reason to know about any of that. And maybe they're right about you not having a reason to, and maybe they aren't. I tend to be of the opinion that in matters doctrinal, everything is public, and therefore you do have a right, and indeed a necessity, to know. It is a minority of pastors that don't think that you are dumb country hicks. It is a minority of pastors and officials who look at you and say that you are actual human beings with brains who can actually ask questions and who can actually comprehend things theological, which is why I don't dumb things down for you. I give it to you the way I think that you can handle it because I respect all of you as folks of a certain level of intelligence and I tend to be very offended by people who think that just because an area is rural or mostly agricultural that it means the people are stupid. Casey, do you have a college degree? No, you don't? Well, you must be stupid then. Because you went to trade school. And you live in Fillmore. <laughs> so you must be, you must be stupid. And all, all you farmers, congratulations to Bruce, by the way, for being the Holt, Holt County farmer, farmer of the Year, yes? Um, <laughs> he, he said it tells you how far things have slipped. <laughs> okay, but, but all you farm people, all you farm people, what do you do for a living? You drive your tractors, you plant your seeds, you drink your beer out of the can. <laughs> you must be stupid. <laughs> but that's, no, that's the attitude, and that's, you, this is, I'm a very offended by that. I'm, I'm very offended by that. Or the attitude that says, well, never invite a farmer to your house because, you know, stupid farmers, they just walk, tramp all over your house with their dirty boots, and they make your house dirty because they're always out in the field. Well, I don't know, the farmers have always been some of the most polite people that have come over to my house. In fact, some of the time when farmers come, they don't even leave their boots on the little boot mat inside. They say, our shoes are too dirty even to bring them into your house. Oh Lord, we are unworthy that you should even come under our roof. We, your house is not worthy of the dirt of our boots. We're going to leave them on the front porch. And I thought, well, that's unnecessary, but very polite of you. So I get very prickled and offended by people who think that just because you didn't go to college or went to a trade school and, and live in Fillmore and work with heating and cooling, that you're stupid. Or that just because you drive a tractor and plant seed for a living, that you're stupid. Casey, you know a whole heck of a lot more than I do about a ton of things. You, I don't need a college degree to, to try and sit and match intellect with you about certain specific things. You aren't stupid. You're an intelligent person. You farmers are highly intelligent. If you gave me a tractor and a field, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I'd net you a loss. So, and I think probably the majority of the country would net you a loss too. So I, I really get offended by that kind of attitude, and, and it was there at the seminary, one or two professors, when they're teaching you how to preach, they say, well, don't use big words because the people don't understand. I say, well, the people are singing words in their hymns, are we going to say they don't understand that? They're confessing big words in their catechism, are we going to say they don't understand that? And maybe they don't understand it. But then what is your job as the pastor if not to help them to understand it? Do they understand everything that they read in the Bible? No, but do I understand everything I read in the Bible? Whoop, cat's out of the bag. <laughs> See, so I am not with many in this sphere who believe that you are stupid people and that we have to dumb everything down and that you don't have a right or a need to know that there are certain things going on. I am very opposed to that. This is your sin just as well as it's mine, and if there are doctrinal matters at stake, then those need to be made public because you need to be made aware of them. Because, for one, you need to know what you're praying for with regard to synod. Two, you need to be reminded that even the, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is an earthly institution and is subject to uh, earthly whims and errors and 
the desires of sinful men. I think that it's kind of ironic that all of this came to light through Christian news because it seems like under new editorial individuals, new editorial staff, Christian news has started making a comeback as less of a... Everything that is true is worth saying, but with a hot mic, everything true is worth being said politely and not like an asshole. What was that? <laughs> I said, everything true is worth saying, but on a hot mic, everything true is worth being said not like an asshole. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> do anybody else miss that? <laughs> you know, there was a professor at the seminary, he was my thesis advisor, and the seminary was going to try this. I, I think they stopped doing it, honestly, because it was just kind of a laugh. But they said, oh, some of our pastors that are out there are getting in trouble because, you know, they are not being polite. So we're going to have these mandatory lectures that are going to address things about how to make our pastors behave like polite human beings. So once a quarter, everyone was at the seminary was... Even the STM, that was my STM year. And I was like, I've already graduated with, I'm not here to, for pastor school anymore. I, now I'm doing theology school. They're, well, you still need to go. You need to learn how to be a decent human being too. Now everybody was required to go to these big lectures once a quarter where the president of the seminary, bless his heart, would tell you, you know, how not to be a jerk. And then you were divided up into small groups and you had a professor that was your small group leader and everybody had to go to lunch and sit at these little tables with their small group leader professor to discuss what was said in the lecture. And God bless him, my thesis advisor, who is known as Wild Bill, for good reason. <laughs> he, moved, he moved to campus. So he was living in campus housing and he is a huge cigar smoker. And they said, you can't smoke in the campus housing. And he said, fine. So he would drive his big old Buick SUV to the parking lot right in front of his office and crack the windows. And he'd sit there smoking a cigar in the parking lot. <laughs> he said, well, I can't smoke it in my house till I smoke it in front of my office. So Wild Bill gets to lunch and he says, well, we got to pray. So they prayed. And then he said, listen, fellas, this is all you need to know. You can be a smart ass, or you can be a dumb ass. I really don't give a damn. Just don't be a jackass. <laughs> now those are words to live by. Hey. But, but so Christian news in former years had sort of a reputation of gotcha journalism. That's, hey, I was polite. That was a polite way. Gotcha journalism. Um, under the, the former editorial staff, much of the articles that were published by Christian News were of this sort. So Bill, um, have you stopped beating your wife? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> See, and then you're, you know, then you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because, well, no, oh, so you haven't stopped beating your wife. Well, yes, so you did once beat your wife. It's just no matter how you answer that question. So and that's sort of what it was like. But, uh, you know, I still don't, I've, I don't care for it very much because of its history, but they're doing much better and um, focusing on, you know, in, its, in the latter days of the previous editorial administration, they were essentially just publishing blog posts that had already been published. But by the time Christian News got to your door, everybody already knew about the blog posts because they had been posted online for a week and a half already. So it was just kind of like, why, why are you wasting the money printing this and sending it to me? But now, you know, they're trying to address matters doctrinal again, which is good. So it's sort of ironic because what was the big whistleblower during the Seminex crisis? It was Christian News. It was Herman Otten and Christian News. And that was the only place where you were actually hearing what was going on in Synod because Synod wasn't talking about it all. It was keeping it hush-hush. And Otten was of the opinion that you needed to know that stuff. And Synod said, they don't need to know that stuff. And now Christian News is saying, they need to know this stuff. Excuse me. And Synod says, you don't need to know it. 
And what happened to her? This is a little, for some of you who've been in the Lutheran church long enough. Now, I actually didn't know about any of this until I got to the seminary because I wasn't part of the Lutheran church. But what happened to Herman Otten? What happened to what? To Herman Otten, the editor of Christian News. You remember what? I was going to ask you that question. Pardon me? I I was going to ask that. Oh, yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. He was the guy. Let me tell you what happened to him. Herman Otten was not approved for ordination by the Council of Presidents at the seminary and was kicked out of the seminary. Now, New Haven, Missouri said, we as a congregation autonomously approve him and then ordained and installed him there where he served his entire life. And that was sort of a, you know, chafing at Synod. Um, Synod was upset with that because, you know, you didn't follow good order. It's said, well, the calling congregation, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, but that's what happened to him. He was, he was sort of kicked out. Well, now you look at this. The Reverend Dr. Gregory P. Schultz at Concordia University whistle blew through Christian news about doctrinal issues in Synod that Synod is keeping hush-hush, and what happened to him? (gasps) Removed. Don't think cancel culture is only in the world, my friends. It's in the church, too. So anyway, keep the university in your prayers. That's why in the congregation at prayer, by the way, there is, um, under persecuted Christians, it's slightly different this week, because there's United States, especially the Reverend Dr. Gregory P. Schultz. I could put some more names on there, but he's the big one right now. And then Canada. You know about everything that's happening in Canada right now. Well, there's a professor from the um, former, former Air Force chaplain and now is a professor of theology dealing with ethics at our sister seminary in Ontario, St. Catharines. And he has been dealing with uh, some of the issues of vaccine mandates and liberty uh, and, and the theology of bodily autonomy um, and dignity of personhood there and has sort of gotten pushback too. So scary times that we live in, very scary times that we live in. Um, I thank God every day that I am in Mound City because I would much rather be at this congregation that has... <laughs> that is the furthest away from district headquarters on its own literal island where I can just deal with my people, where I can avoid politics as much as I am able and just love you and love my community and take care of both here in as faithful an attitude as I can possibly muster as a, as a man to my ordination vows and to the historic Christian faith. That's all that I want in the world is to be on an island away from all of that, just being charge of my own little circus. But you are a wonderful circus. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that we are dumb and stupid. Pardon me? Even though that we are dumb and stupid. I don't think you're dumb and stupid. I don't think that. Now, if you say it about yourself, that's on you. I don't. Um, we as your children also thank God for you. Well, we all thank God together mutually. It's a beneficial arrangement. <laughs> uh, yes, so anyway, that's, that's summarizing all of that material. Now, you can choose to read through all of that if you would like. And, and if you're really curious, I actually would encourage you to read through all of that uh, so that you, you really know what's, what's been said. Uh, one thing that came to light just this week is that the university, it, it sort of behaved kind of um, in, a, in a very underhanded manner in how they treated that professor. But it has now come to light that they actually violated their own policy and, um, what is it, faculty handbook in dealing with conflict and conflict resolution. They just abandoned all of their 
governing principles and became a tyrant in that moment. So not only are they dealing with severe doctrinal issues, canceling, uh, canceling the voice of truth, they are also doing so in violation of their own governing principles. Are, you are popular today. <laughs> I love you all. This is great. This is great. You sure know how to take a doctrinal crisis and make it comedy. Uh, what would have happened if he hadn't? If he hadn't blown the whistle, what would have happened? It, no, nothing. It would have just gone on the way it was going, and then it would be, it would happen. I mean, you know, there, so there are contemporary issues with, with like Concordia University Chicago, River Forest, if that's how you know it, um, because they they had had issues with professors that were teaching there that were an, entirely opposed to the Christian faith, radical LGBTQ activists promoting their agendas on campus. And look, if you want to know my opinion, my opinion is look at the, the Concordia University's system is having a very tough time of it. They're, they're spread so thin and they have so many programs and offerings that they have to bring so many people in that now the, the quality control aspect of who are we gonna hire to teach at our private university is now an issue. Because we need people to fill all of the positions and we can't always vet all of the people that we hire as being people who are actually in support of the doctrine that we affirm. I think one thing that would probably be in its best interest is that we consolidate into one central university that we can pour every amount of our resources in, including financial, so that we also don't have to rely on government grants and government dollars, which also then work to dictate what you're able to do and not able to do in the university setting. They do. And they're accredited too, which also means that they have to go through their accreditation institutions and if they don't mean certain gender and uh, um, diversity higher requirements, they won't be accredited because certainly accreditation shouldn't be based on what you teach or how you teach it. It should be based on what everybody looks like because that makes perfect sense in the world of academia. Listen, folks, this is a sincere plea. The, this country, morally, ethically, and spiritually, is crumbling. And the academic institutions of this country are in absolute shambles. If you really, you young people, this affects you more than it affects any of us. If you want to go to school, you need to be willing, one, to go someplace far away because the places that are good and that will fight to stay good are farther away. But you also have to be willing to say, do I need a college education to be successful? Do you? No. I would say you're very successful. Uh, before I knew you, I talked to people about heating and air conditioning needs, heating and cooling needs, and every single person said, Casey Johnson, Casey Johnson. I 100% wholly endorse Casey Johnson. Heck, I think this whole county would vote for you for president if you were. <laughs> you're what? Yeah, except for Bill. <laughs> you're, you're on his list now, but. Uh, 
But, but you see what I mean. You don't, that kind of, is it worth the brainwashing? Is it worth the struggle for you to go into the lion's den like that? Is it worth the risk that going into the lion's den you're going to come out the same? Just so that you can say, I have a degree and I am a well-rounded person. Because now I know all about gender fluidity and diversity and all that. Am I, more, am I really more well-rounded for having been forced to go through that? So think very carefully, you young people. And, and if you decide to go into the lion's den, you have to know that you are entering the lion's den and they will hate you and they will devour you. You are entering into the Roman Colosseum when you go into an academic university in this day and age. And I thought it was bad when I went to college, and it was, but it was nowhere near what it is right now. What's so scary and upsetting and aggravating is that you think if you send your child to a Concordia University, you're getting one thing. Our oldest went to a public university and we knew what she was going in Yes. This is why this is so upsetting, and this is why you ought to be in the knowledge about this, because this is your synod's institution. Now, should you have at any time any reason to doubt synod? You shouldn't, which is why I don't lift the curtain very often, because if I lifted it every time that I got to see something I didn't like, you would want to leave synod. And I don't want you to have that attitude. I don't want you ever to, I want you, I want the most that you ever say to be, synod is an earthly institution that is governed by earthly men and is subject to error and won't last forever, but as long as they remain faithful, I remain faithful to them. That's what I want you to say. But this affects you because it affects your children. If, if our own universities are having trouble with affirming our faith, who can we trust? Lord, to whom shall we go? Our own synod can't, can't keep its universities together. So you young people, think very carefully. If you want me to tell you some places I think that would be great for you, if you want to go to a university, I will tell you. And if you need help paying a steeper cost to avoid taking out a government loan, I will write you a check out of my own wallet, out of my own checking account, to help you. But you have to know what this world is doing right now to the faith and what our own universities are doing. You have to know that. And you parents have to know that. Because it's not going to get better. I wonder about some of the other uh, Lutheran and name only, uh, Lutheran call them sister congregations, who do send people to Concordia system. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what they are, it may be too early in the game to realize what they're uh, thinking yeah. about. You know, this is another issue is mass appeal. Because we want people to go to our universities, so what should we do to make sure that people want to come to our universities? Well, we want to offer mass appeal. The problem is, mass appeal dissolves everything about you that would make you be a focused institution. If you're going to be a, a focused, conservative, Lutheran university, then be that and just accept that there are people who don't, don't want that and will not come. And just say, that's okay. But the, but the idea that we have to offer every single program, that we have to be in competition with with the, pu with the public sector, with the public universities, with the state schools, that we have to be able to match their numbers, we have to be able to do everything that they do, we have to be able to offer all of the same type of degrees that they do or else people won't come. 
Well, then we have to be more general. We can't be as specific and as focused. And I would rather that a university like that practice what it preach and be focused like it really wants to be. There's a university project that is a, is, is a private project that is being started up actually by some Lutherans. Um, some kind of big name Lutherans. Um, I know a few of them personally and I know a few of them by reputation. And it's being started in Wyoming, I believe. They're, they're looking to have their opening year be 2025. If you're interested in that, we actually, the library, the St. Jerome Library, subscribes to their little journal that they put out. It's called Christian Culture. We have all kinds of magazines and journals, if you weren't aware, that are all right there on the little podium in the library. You can go down there and you can look through that Christian Culture magazine and there's information about the college there if you're interested. There's also a college called New St. Andrews, which I believe is in Idaho. And at this moment, my opinion is, if Saoirse were of college age, I would send her to Idaho to go to school there because it, it, it is extraordinary. All, uh, another Christian university, not Lutheran, but I think it's Roman Catholic, but founded on the principles of being a counterculture amidst the regular culture of saying basically, you know, F you to restrictions and mandates that, and diversity requirements and all that kind of stuff that are gonna be imposed and say, no, we're gonna be a conservative religious institution and, and also provide a quality education that is offered by quality academic intellectuals. So that's another one. Of course, there's Hillsdale in Michigan as well, which I don't see falling anytime soon. That's kind of a bastion. Um, so those are, those are three right there that... Pat, Pat, Patrick Henry College. Yes, Patrick Henry College in Virginia. In Virginia. Mm -hmm. I, I have some classmates who went there too. So, they don't yes, the government, the government funds are a problem. You know, the seminary accepts those too, which is too bad. Um, I, my stone, my loans at the seminary are all federal loans. And there was a, there was a time when with all of the, you know, the, the gay rights and the lawsuits uh, that folks were going to be mandated by the government that anyone who received federal funding would have to promote what the government said was right, which was, in, that included all of the Concordia universities and both of our seminaries. And, the, and then you just have to stop and think, at what point do we really want to seriously cut these ties and, and become our, the, the counterculture that we're supposed to be? Um, but anyway, yes, this was, this was more than just a brief explanation, but, but I think that this is really important for you to know about these things. It's really important that even though you live in Mound City, which I love, and one of the reasons that I love it is because it's a bubble that is sort of exempt from so much of what's happening in society and in culture around you, um, even in the public school. The public school is even kind of a unique public school um, compared with, with the other options that are around. So uh, it is a bubble. But you are, it doesn't mean that the bubble is exempt. So I, I, what I want you not to have is a false sense of security simply because you know that you live in the bubble. I want you to, I want you to live in this bubble because it's a beautiful bubble. But I want you to know that you live in a bubble. And I want you to know what's out there and what's coming to devour your bubble. And I want you to be able to recognize it because I want you to be able to fight it. Because if you, can't fight, if you don't recognize it, you can't fight it. So you have to recognize it, you have to see when it comes, you have to recognize it, you have to be ready to fight it. The handout, we don't need, we don't need, you can have questions, you can ask me about it another time, but principalities, powers, dominions, thrones, it's, I told you it was spiritual language, it's, it's angelic, there's a, an angelic hierarchy. So when we talk about angels and archangels, that's part of the hierarchy of different kinds of angels. 
And this is just talking to you a little bit about that, um, the different kinds of angels uh, and their different ranks. And this comes from uh, Thomas Aquinas and from uh, the uh, Dionysus the, the Areopagite, I believe. So who wrote on the heavenly powers and their hierarchy. So uh, this is just something for you to take and a little more for you to learn. You're welcome to have questions. This last page is more from Thomas Aquinas. This is the entire hierarchy of beings. Man is, man is kind of unique because you're the lowest of the spiritual beings, but you're also the highest of the animals, and the combination of the two means that you are the crown jewel of creation. Lowest of the spiritual beings, which is why Satan is angry because he doesn't want to pay homage to you because he thinks that you're just a sack of dirt and meat. You're just an animal. And the animals look up to you in reverence because you have dominion over them because you are the highest among them because you possess reason and a soul and intellect and you uh, are something that reflects the image and likeness of God. So you can just kind of read through this at your leisure. I just wanted to explain to you in a better, less off-the-cuff way the deeper meaning behind this thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers in Colossians and in Romans and in Ephesians 2. So with that, let's go get some Jesus because I think we all could use him.